Welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll. I'm John, and I have Libby with me. And Libby, you're in the Big Easy? Yeah, New Orleans. Like, you know, just drinking coffee and loving life. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great spot to be on, on a Friday. I know you're working, but uh, I, I talked to you right before you, you get one night to kind of relax, right? Yeah, I'm excited. Awesome. Well, have a lot of fun. Well, listen, uh, for folks that are new to our program, Libby and I are both pollsters. Our job is to uh, look at society for our clients. And each week we try to take a, a pulse of what's going on through a range of different Harris polls. And what we're going to talk about this week are four uh, interesting stories to us. Libby, the first one we've got is... Um, I'm calling this Elon Musk's shotgun wedding. I don't want to give away too much, so I'm going to just leave it at there. Um, but talk to me a little bit about the second story you've got for us. Yeah, it's time for a third party candidate. You know, what do Americans want in the 2024 election season? We have some results on that coming up as well. That sounds great. And then for our third story, you know, we've touched on this a couple times, but you and I were jamming on a panel we did earlier this summer, and you came up with this killer phrase, which was, companies aren't Switzerland, they are the UN. And I absolutely love that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tease that too. We'll get into it. But that's really a, a conversation around some new data we have on uh, companies speaking out on social issues. And I'm going to have you explain the the, uh, the Libby doctrine <laughs> philosophy. Uh, and then we're going to finish up with uh, a crypto story. Yeah, so, you know, we came out with a global um, index report with MasterCard, and uh, the story is that the, the global world is crypto-cautious, but still very curious and growing, so we have a little bit of information around that. All right, well, hey, let's get into the weekly numbers that we do, as per usual. So, kind of looking at the data that came out of the field this week, no surprise, I guess, 85% of Americans are still worried about the economy and inflation. 82% are worried about crime and random acts of violence. 73% are concerned about political divisiveness and the Russian war on Ukraine. And this is interesting, Libby, the BA variant um, and COVID, 63% of Americans are concerned about that, but that's down two points, but it's been replaced by <laughs> monkeypox at 61%, and that is up three points. And uh, lastly, a, a slight bit of good news, although 69% of Americans are concerned about affording their living expenses, that's down four points this week. And I thought that was curious because we also got some good macroeconomic news, at least that potentially inflation might be cresting. The Labor Department reported that the CPI did continue to rise in July um, this week at 8.5%, but that is down from 9.1% in June. So maybe the worst is behind us. But um, you and I are both data geeks, and we also love data viz. And you sent me, you texted me that killer chart from the Wall Street Journal. So oh, yeah. So uh, Wall Street Journal one? has this really fun um you can make your own CPI index. So what's your inflation rate basket index? And I think what's so fun about it is you can calculate your spending habits versus just the average CPI chart. Um, and so for your, if you're in New York, for example, you're not really buying gas for the most part. Or for me, I'm not really buying dairy because I'm dairy-free and all these things. So actually my basket was under 
the the national average basket, which made me feel like a a thrifty shopper. But what was interesting about it is the numbers that were really high were things like um, women's clothing was really high. It, it's it's been way higher than, for example, men's clothing. Um, and so there's there's been talk about a pink tax there, and then um, just like services in general. But if you're an average, you know, American not living in New York where you might not need a car, the prices for fuel, oil, um, that went up seventy five percent from a year ago. But meanwhile, smartphones had the largest drop, falling almost twenty percent year over year. Why is that? That's curious. Yeah. Why is that? Why is that? Um, you know, I think it's because there's there's more smartphones on the market. And also, if you look at kind of um, Samsung and the major players kind of throwing out smartphones, they actually had some hits and misses, like Google and Samsung. So I think they're trying to get to that next cycle of their smartphone to uh, be competitive to Apple um, iOS phones. I, I, this was the first year in my life in 10 years that I've switched from an Android phone back to the Apple phone system. And it's just because they weren't able to kind of keep up with what Apple's doing. So hmm. I have, I have joined the cult of Apple yet again. A, so a smartphone downturn. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I guess we also found um, American confidence is, is lagging uh, continuously. We still have 83% that are concerned about this, U.S. recession, so that's been sort of ping-ponging back and forth. That's up three points this week, so kind of a continue to watch the numbers. But I, I love your macro part about this whole thing that we're now sort of just cresting and surfing crises. I think Americans are building in this sort of as you. I think you talked about it in, in, an inherent agility to sort of weather the storm. Uh, well, we'll see some of that. Speaking of storms, let's talk about our first story. So. Elon Musk's shotgun wedding. This is, uh, I thought this was some really interesting data this week. This came from a, a poll that we did at Harris with AdAge. And Libby, Twitter's most avid users, okay, the ones who, who are heavy users on the platform, are actually rooting against Elon Musk in his court case. And I think presumably what's behind this, we'll get into the data, but it's to you know, get him to buy the social media platform, presumably because they think he'd be better management than what they have now. <laughs> and, um, and I thought it was real interesting. So I, I think everybody knows his story, so we won't belay, you know, belay it very long, but, um, you know, Twitter is suing Musk, right, to make good on his $44 billion deal to purchase the company. He's like, hey, there's lots of spam bots, spam bots, I'm not doing this. But I think what's real interesting in the data is that Twitter's most active users are actually siding with Twitter in the lawsuit. So 49% of Twitter users really want Musk to lose the lawsuit so he has to buy the company. That's 49% versus 35% of all Americans. And Libby, that's a 14-point swing. I mean, that's a really statistically significant difference. And so I'm curious, you know, like about what insiders, what heavy Twitter users feel on that. You know, I mean, there was an interesting Harris data point that, that Jack Cooney, our producer, found from her research earlier in May. Um, you know, she put in, Libby, that that um, there was a whole issue about, um, you know, millennials and men at 64% and 60% were really excited about Musk's bid because they thought that he would reinstate 
uh, Twitter accounts, including the former President Trump, which gave gave some support there. But um, I, I'm just curious, Libby, what you think about these numbers, because, you know, why are Twitter fans rooting with, but really against the own current management? Yeah, um, I've been thinking about this, and I think it's like, if you put yourself in the mind state of a daily active Twitter user, so someone who's basically building a per a brand on Twitter, a network on Twitter, exchanging information on Twitter, having Elon Musk come in and say, I'm going to create a vision for this company, I think was enticing because it's been a little bit visionless. It's like, where is Twitter going? There's always this uncertainty. But then also having him pull out created so much instability and uncertainty. So I know a lot of people who have this is this is their communication channel. And so to think that it might go away because there's some uncertainty in the market and maybe that leaves it for a new buyer who has a totally different perspective of Twitter is actually kind of scary versus Elon Musk who might keep the platform around in the way that it's meant to be that active Twitter users have today. So I think it's that Elon Musk has created a lot of instability, but they're they're really, you know, the the thing against Jack Dorsey when he was in uh, charge of Twitter as a shareholder was always that there was kind of a lack of vision of like, where is it going and how is it going to get monetized? But Elon Musk had a lot of solutions for that. So whether mm-hmm. you wanted him to be that person or not, there's just this lack of vision that now needs to be filled and it needs to be filled really quickly to create more certainty and stability in the platform. You know, that's really interesting what you're saying about these Twitter users, these active users are actually, they're the creators, right? They're influencers, they've got their personal brand, they've got their small business or large business, all sort of connected um, to to the platform. Is, is that what you're saying? So yeah, really that's like exactly what I'm saying. And that actually, it goes to a lot of the thinking we've been doing around why Web3 is happening. So if you think about it, if your brand or your network or your influence is all in one platform, and then let's say it's not even Elon Musk, but just some outside player who comes in, decides to close Twitter, buys it, closes it down, or sells mm-hmm. it to someone with different interest, and then your whole business model is in flux, right? And so the idea of the next version of the internet would be, let's say that Twitter is owned and operationalized by its users, it creates a lot more stability in more micro-voting and the idea that the community who gets value from Twitter really owns Twitter. But right now, that's not the case. It's in this like closed garden ecosystem, right? Um, and so I think I think these kinds of arguments or these kinds of feelings that people are going through will actually evolve us and accelerate us into that next phase of the internet that is more decentralized because you'll you see with these centralized players is that there is a lot of instability in the fact that one person gets to dictate everything as well. That's really interesting. And Clearly, the business performance of Twitter has been lacking, right? I, I was looking on Seeking Alpha, and in November, the shares of Twitter had produced zero net return 
since its IPO eight years ago. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, as a shareholder myself, I'm like, oh, this is just so painful to watch. (laughs) But it just hasn't had a vision in the market. You know, it it hasn't had a monetization, a way to think of monetization. And it just, um, it's been lacking in the way that its social media network peers haven't been. So um, there's probably a big opportunity in its future, but it's uncertain what that is. Got it. Speaking of uncertainty is what the 2024 election looks like, um, let alone 2022. But uh, talk to us a little bit about this data. I thought this was super interesting. This is from our July uh, Harvard Caps Harris poll that was covered by Business Insider. And uh, the titles, it's time for a third party candidate. Yeah. And so, John, I'd like to ask you, what do you think Kanye West, Oprah Winfrey and The Rock have in common? I'd say they'd like to get to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and chances are, you know, there's there's some opening there. So according to our Harvard Caps Harris poll, voters are showing more interest in a third party candidate at a time when approval ratings are historically low for government bodies, indicating a growing appeal for this kind of third party opening. And so basically, um, Americans in the, this world of two extremes, um, which is kind of the Biden and Trump ticket, Americans are calling for a moderate leader. Six in 10, 58% of registered voters would consider a moderate independent candidate for president if the 24 ticket um, was between Trump and Biden. And this is especially true when we look at 18 to 34 year olds at 68%. So almost seven in 10 younger voters are saying, listen, I would want a moderate independent candidate if the choice is Trump or Biden. And so John, I'm just, you know, why do you think this is the case? Why do you think they're eager to go anywhere besides these two candidates? Oh man, this is such interesting data, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I think you got to start, um, and go back a whole year to one year ago this week, actually, when the uh, U.S. had its very, very messy and chaotic uh, withdrawal of Afghanistan. And that was the the cresting of Biden's approval rating in our Harvard Caps Harris poll. Since then, it's gone steadily downward. And at the same time, there's been this narrative that the president is out of touch, that he's too old, um, not mentally up for the job. You know, in fact, 69% of voters in that same poll this month said that Biden shouldn't run for president again. But Libby, the other part that was interesting in here is that, you know, just 10 points less, but still a strong majority, 59% of all American voters also said Trump shouldn't run either, uh, saying that he's erratic, he'll continue to divide America, he was responsible for January 6th, that was sort of a third, a third, a third, the reasons why. So you've got Biden on one side being old and a bad president. You have Trump on the other side with these criticisms. But I thought your your point about younger voters was really the thing that we should, you know, really focus in on here. Because, I mean, Libby, I'd love your take on this, but I think what you see in these numbers is that younger voters don't think that these two guys are moving fast enough on the issues that are important to them. You know, we, we saw in that data that, you know, voters 18 to 34 are more concerned about abortion rights than the average American voter. That's at 37% versus 26%. And I should mention, this is a question we ask 
what are the top two most important issues to you in the country? And so, you know, abortion with a significant jump, same sort of issues on racial equality and in climate. So they're just sort of different. And we saw this entirely interesting fact, Libby, where eight in 10 younger Americans, again, at these 18 to 34 year olds said global health, gender equality, racial justice, and climate, these were critical issues to them, eight out of 10 on average uh, of, of those voters. Yet in our new Harvard Harris poll, you know, 56% of all voters actually favored the Supreme Court overturning fossil fuel restrictions. And another six in 10 didn't believe in Biden's emergency climate declaration was legitimate. So I, I don't know, Libby, it feels like you have younger voters want a president, she or he, who feels their existential threats, right? Who's like imagining the same future as them. I, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, this is a conversation I've had recently <laughs> around dinner tables uh, with family members, uh, multi-generational family members, where younger members of my family have said, older people should just stop running because they don't understand us. And it's kind of like a, a tale as old as time. You know, it's a, it's a generational value misalignment on what is my future as a 25 year old going to look like in 40 to 60 years time. Whereas someone who might be nearing their eighties is like thinking about the next 20 years. Right. Um, right. And so just the, the longevity and long-termism that, young people are thinking about and the, the actions that are needed to take that um, are really strong and, and felt very urgently right now in um, young America and youth America. And we, we hear that all the time in our interviews with them and our focus groups with them. It's, it's a very urgent need to be realistic and to have action now. And so that's why I think there's this like bridging of of waters where it's like, it's not Biden, it's not Trump, it's gotta be a new candidate, a new candidate for hope. But it's like, who is that, right? And so I think the 2024 elections will be a lot like, you know, almost like watching America's next top model. Like who's hmm. gonna be the person? Who's gonna fill the vision gap? Like, is it you, Oprah? Is it you, et cetera? Like what people are gonna come in? And I'm not someone who, wants to see like necessarily another celebrity fill that spot. But I think what you're seeing is people want someone who is going to step up, who is going to be in that um, moderate independent position and is going to just bring people together uh, for a collaborative reason to create action and movement forward and not be paralyzed by extreme ideas. Absolutely. Now you see that in the data, right? I mean, even this week, 73% of Americans, three quarters almost are concerned about political division. But um, maybe that's a good segue to talk about this idea of companies aren't Switzerland. They are the UN. Why don't we, um, well, I'll set the stage, right? Mm -hmm. So clearly summer, and, and this, this data is built on a, on a, on a real interesting op-ed that our Harris Poll chairman, Mark Penn, wrote in AdAge a couple of weeks ago, and it was built on a couple of different data sets that, we, that we've got. But this summer was just, right, so, as you just said, politically tumultuous, right? You had the overturning of Roe v. Wade. 
He had the January 6th Senate committee hearings and now, you know, the recent raid on Mar-a-Lago. It just feels like everything continues to be pulled apart. But do you want to talk a little bit about how you came up with this this concept? I thought this was interesting. Yeah. So it's the idea that you can't sit on the sidelines anymore as a, as a brand. You cannot be Switzerland. You cannot have a neutral position. You cannot say nothing with these big events that impact your consumer base and your employee base and your shareholders happen. Like you have to have a point of view and you don't have to have a point of view on everything, I think, but you have to be like the UN where you're, you know, progressing agendas forward um, and you're taking pillars and you're creating stances on things that, that matter to you. Yeah. I think that's a really good way, good way of putting it. And I think to start, with the favorable reasons of why you have to do what you just said. You know, this year in our Milken Institute Harris Poll Listening Project, and this is an incredibly robust survey. This is 17,000 citizens in 27 countries. And Libby, you know, we, we saw some interesting stats, but one of the really good ones was that three quarters of people around the world um, actually have a more favorable impression of business in their countries since the pandemic and at the same time global trust in governments has fallen and the number one reason why it had felt had fallen was that it, there was indifference and apathy that was the number one reason and it was really driving um, a lot of of challenges the fourth most important reason was um, governance and transparency so clearly they think their governments are out of touch that businesses being profit-minded and potentially having greater resources in some areas, particularly in a lot of these different countries we, we measured, could really come in and, and make a difference. But I think what's interesting about what you're talking about is that you do have to have well-articulated, sustainable goals. I think, you know, like with the UN, you know, there are mandates that are sort of targets that people understand where you're going. And then when you deviate from those, for example, as we found in our Axios Harris Poll 100 study this year, people can really come back at you. And we saw that this year with Disney, right? Disney's ranking actually dropped from 37th most admired company in our survey to 65th this year. And Disney had been sort of a top 10 company uh, almost year after year. And this was really in in relation, we believe, to the uh, the fallout of the, the Florida Ron DeSantis don't say gay bill. You know, Libby, I don't know what you think, but. Well, I mean, um, John, I loved what you said in your Ad Age article where you're quoted about Disney about face shows the reputational hit that comes when the public perceives you as being calculating rather than clear in what you believe in and stand for. And I think that the thing is, it's like the basic principles of marketing our relationships. So if you think about it, like I know John and I know his values and I could guess what he would react to, to the issues of today, because I I have a pretty good, clear understanding of his GPS. Then it's like, if I know John and he feels calculating to me, then I'm not going to trust him. And like, it's mm. just as simple as that. If, com- if if consumers feel like you're calculating your response because you don't have an actual like true north GPS framework to navigate the world on the pillars and the values you believe in, 
then everything that you come across is going to feel calculating and therefore they're not going to trust you. And it's, it's kind of as simple as those basic relationships that we build on and how we fundamentally see the world and how we build those relationships with others. Mm, I love that, that, that framework of a GPS, uh, you know, sort of a value system. And I think that's what's at play here with businesses, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, we do, we do see that there is some interesting, you know, articulations here in terms of when uh, and if companies and CEOs should speak out on political views. So one of the questions we asked um, in this recent data, you know, we found about almost four in 10, 36% of Americans said it was a good idea for the company, but 42% <sighs> said it was a bad idea for the company and sort of 22% said no impact. But what you got to look at is what you were just talking about with values, right? We know in our data, Libby, that young people buy brands from companies they admire and values have become incredibly important in many uh, brand choices. And we saw that in this data. It was so fascinating to me that if you think about that, that number 36% of Americans, that, that's the general public. Well, let's contrast that to Gen Z. They said 54% said it was good for the company. That's an 18 point swing. Um, and millennials you know, said uh, 52%, so a 16 point swing. And we get that same sort of dynamic happening when you look at BIPOC Americans, right? Nearly six in 10, 58% of black Americans, 54% of Hispanic Americans said there's more reward in CEOs speaking out on social issues versus only 43% of white Americans. So, I mean, I think what gets really interesting in this is that there's a today and then there's this not too distant tomorrow, right? Because if you look at these future consumers, future workers, they're really looking for companies to articulate a point of view. Yeah, and one of my favorite quotes um, when we were doing research last summer with um, a group of BIPOC women was this woman who was saying, listen, we're taking mental notes. We're watching your actions. And most importantly, we're watching your inactions. So don't think you can stand by the sidelines and not do anything when our communities need you the most and that we won't notice that. Because in fact, we do notice that we take the mental notes and it, it, it dings your relationship. Um, and so again, not taking it in action, you know, being part of inaction in Americans under 40 who all they want is action, you know, is, is a very dangerous place to be. Absolutely. And the data does also point out that Americans feel that, you know, less than half of them are really getting it right. So there are a lot of Disney like problems out there, you know, only 40% of Americans say companies are speaking out on social issues at the right amount and 32% say they're doing too much. And so I guess maybe for the last you know minute or so, let's try to put some practical applications on this because I think number one, when businesses speak out, oftentimes they're pressured by a stakeholder. You know, it's either their employees, you know, if you're a big, Fortune 500 company, you've just got massive, diverse workforces. That was the case with Disney, right? I mean, Disney was pressured, Chapek was pressured to, to speak out. But, you know, I mean, was there any insight that you gleaned from, you know, Mark's op-ed or, or sort of a, a playbook that business should think about, like when they should speak out and how? Yeah, it, it's, um, it's interesting. It's even the way that people talk about cybersecurity today. Like you have to have 
a playbook so that when these existential crisis, when these moments of cultural turmoil come knocking at your door, you're not trying to figure it out in the 24th hour, you know? Um, and so one way to think about that and what we do with clients is like, we'll work with them on, well, what are your value pillars? And then who are your constituent bases? So who are your consumers? What do your employees think about? What do your stakeholders think about? And then rank and understand the values that are most authentic for you, the issues to talk about and take like a long-term stake in those issues and then put other things to um, not necessarily always to the side, but to a parking lot of like, we will talk about these issues when and if it impacts these things. So there's a lot of like criteria and judgment that needs to be kind of strategically mapped out. So when things come up and crisis points come up, you have a way to react and respond that feels organic to your navigating system. And it's clear to your employees, right? Because yeah. that's been, it's back to your point about the sustainable goals of the UN. It's like, you know where the UN's coming from. We're trying yeah. to solve food insecurity. We're trying to do this and this and this. And um, I think that was interesting what, what Penn talked about in this ad age. And we'll put his op-ed in the show notes. But, you know, he recommended that, that brands take a position that's close to their business. Um, they should have a balanced team of consultants, mm -hmm. right? You should have folks from the left and right that are looking at both sides of these issues. And as you just pointed out, be consistent with their values. I, I wanted to leave one quick thing on this, which I thought was so interesting. Yeah. You know, every year, Libby, Patagonia <laughs> and Chick-fil-A are always like in our top 20 of most admired companies, sometimes in the top 10. And um, I want you to just visualize this, okay? You have Patagonia employees and you have Chick-fil-A employees at the same company picnic. Okay, just get that in your head. So yes. I, I mean, it is a little odd, but what is so fascinating is that Americans respect both these companies, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or an independent. And you know, I feel that they may not agree with their beliefs or their politics, but they walk their talk, right? They're consistent. So I think consistency is an important thing here as well. Yeah, well-dressed and well-fed. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, absolutely. I think I, I think people don't have a problem. Again, it's, it's back to your point about calculating too. Like, who, are you who you say you are? And, and can I anticipate how you're going to act? Or are you calculating? And if you're calculating, I inherently am not going to be able to trust you because I don't know where you're going to act and how that's going to play out. Yeah, well said. Well, speaking of trust, so crypto has sort of hit a trust <laughs> bubble, right? Um, but take us home on this last story. Sure. This so this is, data. yeah, this is some of the recent um, work that we did with MasterCard's new payment index, which is a global study um, where we you know, surveyed over 35,000 people. And basically, you know, the net net of that is that people are crypto cautious, of course, but they're still curious and growing. And, you know, the, the global context is now one in 10. So 11% of global citizens reported having already made a purchase using a digital asset in the last year. And over a third, 36%, said they're likely to pay with cryptocurrencies in the next year. Um, but ultimately, you know, after this big spring meltdown and we're kind of in the crypto winter, people would really like to see more stability in the industry. So globally, six and 10 say they're 
would like to feel more confident about crypto if they knew it was issued or backed by a reputable organization. Um, a similar number, 63%, also agree that the government should regulate cryptocurrency and the stablecoin sector. And for those who don't know, stablecoin is like the idea that a cryptocurrency would be tied to an actual fiat currency like the U.S. Um, dollar. And so, you know, with all of that, though, I think, John, like the real question is, why do you what do you think is driving our desire to reimagine money? And I think there was something interesting I was reading that there's now more currencies than countries, you know, and, and traditionally it was a like currency per country, but now there's more currency than country. So like, what are we doing to, why are we, why are we here? Why are we reimagining money? Well, the, first of all, I think it's interesting in this new MasterCard Harris data that there continues to be sort of a, um, a caution, but a curiosity around crypto, given everything that's that's happened. But I think some of the things are, are really fundamental, right? Which is, and this is stuff that you've pointed out, but, you know, with traditional currencies, the financial system hasn't worked for most Americans, right? I mean, we, we saw that BIPOC Americans, that the LGBTQ plus community were all early adopters of crypto because it was routing around traditional financial barriers to investing in, in wealth creation. So I think that's a, a real powerful part of it. And the other part is just trust. You know, we um, I, I looked this morning, Libby, in, into the Milken Harris data again, and I found that only 20% of global citizens, this is that 17 country study that we fielded in May, um, only 20% of global citizens trust the banking systems in their countries. So that's pretty indicting, right? And that's a trust, very much trust. Then there was 47% said they somewhat trust. So I think what you've got is like a soft trust of the financial sector. So yeah, crypto has been taking a hit, but it's not like the traditional banking system has done that much better for ordinary people. And, you know, I think that's an interesting part of it. And also the fact that, you know, all this political uncertainty um, is an issue. But then on the positive side, I think there's this concept of digital perpetuity, right? I mean, I mean, Libby, it's like if you made money one time, you made money, but what if you make money off of an NFT that continues to sort of create an ongoing return? I mean, don't you think, did you find that in your data that there's sort of a, of a perpetual value possibility with crypto that you hadn't seen traditionally yeah i i absolutely agree with that and i think i think the thing is like whether it's crypto or not i kind of think the what you're saying is like there's been a lack of trust there's been a lack of equity there's been a lack of a lot of things that people want to solve for for the future so it's like why can't we cut out middleman fees you know why can't we create a more uh, a system that is more immutable, that is that is full of more trust inherently because it's more decentralized. And then um, why can't, you know, if you sell art, why can't you be paid in perpetuity? And that it doesn't just have to be art. It could be ideas. It could be, you know, ways in which your value that you put out in society continues to have a ripple effect on people and you can continue to get little monetizations of that value. So I think that is a, essentially why cryptocurrency is being adapted or interested in. And 
I, I mean, I'm personally kind of excited by the froth being taken out of the market so that mm. we don't have these. I mean, I think, John, every time we talk about this, people are like, is it a buy or not? And I'm like, I'm glad that it's not a buy right now for people <laughs> and that we can just get into like, why are people wanting these things and what's the need that it's filling? Because if we can get to the need, there's a lot of tools and services and experiences that we can ideate for to fill the real needs of of the global market today and that's like that's pretty exciting uh, absolutely and i think the, I'll, I'll leave it with this which is when you think about disruptions and and everything your, your point about looking at the underlying needs are so, is so vital because i mean i always think about the the napster principle right it's like napster didn't work but without napster you don't get apple music then you don't get spotify right mm -hmm. so here is we're going through this cycle and all this consternation, what may come out of the other end could be an even better, safer, more inclusive set of products. Yeah. Because they definitely seem to be filling a need. Yeah, and I hope so, right? I mean, that's that's the that's the hope and the the vision you got to put out in the market to make it happen. So. All right. Well, we've we've kept you long enough. We need to get out. <laughs> Uh, on to uh, Magazine Street. You got to go get a beignet. You got to go get a nice coffee. Yes. And you got to go hit the Big Easy before you uh, come back to reality. <laughs> yeah. I'm really just experiencing the metaverse in New Orleans from my couch. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you, everyone. Uh, yeah. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.